Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, today we're uh, continuing in Corinthians and looking at uh, chapter 14. But let me remind you of what I'm working on here. I've made the deep connection, or I've said there's a connection between Romans 8 in which there is this groaning or a, a deep access to God. And in 1 Corinthians 13 to 14, Paul is describing tongues in what seems to be similar. That is that what it involved was something that passed beneath or beyond what can be understood. So in some way it is mysterious. It's a mysterious communion with God. But to say mystery, this is not to mean that it is not inherently unintelligible. That is that Paul is saying to those who speak in tongues, and he says, well, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but he wants them to make it intelligible, to in some way make it uh, so that you can share your deep communion with God with everybody. And so we might picture tongues in this instance as the deep, private, prayerful communion that we're to have with God. Always keeping in mind that out of our private time, we're to come, we're to do that with an eye to sharing it with the community. And so Romans 8 is parallel. There's an isolated, you know, suffering part to all of us in Paul's description that is the opening to participation in the Trinity, that Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So that's my premise. And I, I've said this is tentative. It's, uh, I'm setting this forth. But it is a way that we can understand this. It's, I'm not the only one to have made this connection. With that in mind, then, let's read uh, chapter 14 from verse 13. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say, the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind, so that I may instruct others also, rather than ten thousand words in a tongue. Some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. I mean, if nothing else, this is what we're to take. Is the desired end result with tongues. Whatever this is, that's the outcome. To share with the community something intelligible. The characteristics of the tongues is in Paul's illustration and he, we didn't read this, but he goes through. It's like musical instruments that do not make distinction in the notes. There's no discernible music. 
And what makes for music or language or intelligibility is difference in the notes. We might say that meaning rests upon difference within a sign system. Now Paul is not saying that meaning is grounded in a sign system. Meaning comes from Christ, right? Meaning's not in the law. Meaning's not in words. Meaning is a, in a person. And this communion with Christ, this private communion, may be unintelligible. It may surpass our understanding. And this is proven, you know, by his discussion of tongues. He says in 2 Corinthians that the word, the sign, the letter, taken as an end in itself, kills. The law kills. The letter kills. The law, language, symbol systems may generate a kind of apparent meaning, but if you mistake the sign for the thing that it's pointing toward, if you imagine, you know, in the case of the Jews, oh, we, we believe in the law, not in the, the person of God. That's the significance here. It may generate a kind of apparent meaning. Paul it says it kills because it is pointing to that which is empty and unreal. And this is idolatry, right? Now, I, this is not the issue here. The question is the relationship between words and truth intelligibility and what is unintelligible. If we do not follow the argument here, we're going to miss what seems to be a contradictory point. I'm going to read another section in which Paul seems to be saying just the opposite when he says that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. And this is what I want to focus on today. This kind of strange passage from verse 20. But I think it's very central and it's very interesting. Let me read then from verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together, and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. This seems to directly, in other words, in this short little passage, it seems to directly contradict his point. That people who are outsiders may come in and think you are crazy if you're speaking in tongues. That is, maybe they'll think you're just another cult because maybe in Corinth there were other religions that had this kind of ecstatic noise making. And so they'll think you're out of your heads if you're speaking in tongues. But then he says, the tongues are a sign for outsiders. What is he saying here? 
And he's referencing Isaiah 28, and that's where I'd like for you to look a minute. I'll read several sections from Isaiah 28, which says who it is he's trying to teach, to whom is he explaining his message. To children weaned from milk, to those just taken from the breast, for it is do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. From Isaiah 28. And this is a long passage if you look here. Verse 11. This is where Paul quotes. Very well then with foreign lips and strange tongues. God will speak to this people to whom he said. This is the resting place. Let the weary rest and this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become... Do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. So that as they go, they will fall backward, they will be injured and snared and captured. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast we have entered into a covenant with death, verse 15. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement when an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. Isaiah 28 is a judgment oracle directed particularly against the scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. They refuse to listen to the word of the prophet. They're refusing the word of the, the prophet and it's as if it's unintelligible baby talk. And in fact, the Hebrew is very obscure here. The phrase translated in you know, 2810, 2813, rule upon rule. Uh, some people say, oh, that's just nonsense in the Hebrew. It's just noise making. But the point is, Isaiah 28, 11 to 13, the scoffing rulers have refused to listen to the prophetic promise of rest. But instead of trying to create security for themselves, the word of God just comes out to them sounding like rule upon rule. They're trusting in the rule or they're trusting in the word themselves. And the word of God will be like gibberish spoken in an alien tongue. Thus the sign of unintelligible speech is a prophetic sign of judgment. I think this is what Paul means when he says that tongues are a sign for unbelievers, and he quotes this passage. They are a sign of condemnation, symbolizing the inaccessibility of divine revelation, knowing God. Paul cites the same passage in Romans, uh, pondering the mystery of Israel's unbelief, the section we just covered. Those who have made a covenant with death, Isaiah says, cannot discern the words of the Lord. And the words of the Lord just sound like nonsense. And maybe that's what the Hebrew is reproducing here. The words sound simultaneously like noise or like legalism. Do this, do that, rule upon rule. And this is equated with the covenant with death. The word of God is undiscernible. They can't discern it for them and it says they are so drunk, it's like they're drunk upon the law. 
It says covering the tables with vomit as they are injured, snared, and captured. They have done what people always do. They have taken the letter, the scripture, the word as an end in itself. They are people of pure propositions, pure science, pure language, who imagine the meaning inheres in the signs and symbols. They would secure themselves, maybe in Isaiah it's a, they're securing themselves through trusting in themselves, maybe they're making an alliance with Egypt, but in some way they're trusting what they can do over the prophet, over God's word. And the tongues then are a sign of their lack of access to the spirit. There is a depth of meaning in the spirit which passes beyond the intelligible as it passes into participation in the Trinity. And I think Paul's saying every believer has access to the realm of the spirit. That's not a gift in particular for one group of people. Paul describes both here and Romans 8. This is for everybody. This mysterious union with God is precisely the place, that is our personal communion with God, is the place connected to a deep meaning. It's not disconnected from the community, but it's an extension of that. Though we have access to this mystery, it's a mystery we're to interpret and understand. Where a lie, and that's what Isaiah is talking about, where a lie serves in place of the truth. You know, you've made a covenant with death. There is maybe a form of truth that seems to be rendered, you know, things seem to be true. But what gives them coherence? It's inaccessible. We can say that a lie, and Isaiah covers this, has three parts. There's the symbol system. You know, in Isaiah, rule upon rule. There's the, the language, the sign, the law. Then there is the object, which the lie is focused on. And in this case, it's the covenant with death. You know, whatever that means, whether that means that in their religion, we can see in Isaiah they're practicing idolatrous religion. It may mean that uh, an alliance with Egypt, whatever it is, they imagine that through their own strength they're protected from the grave finding life in the letter of the law when in fact the letter kills. And what the lie is covering up is of course the reality of death. And that's what it describes that you know when the scourge of death sweeps through you're all going to be taken with it. Now behind all of this if you make a covenant with death who does that displace? It displaces God. God gives life. God gives meaning. Not law, not culture, not language. Isaiah says, befuddled with wine, they reel from beer, they stagger when seeing visions, they stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit, and there is not a spot without filth. As they go, they fall backward, they will be injured and snared and captured. Where the law is made primary, or as in you know, the desire, forbidden desire, the notion that life is in the letter of the law, the relationship is such that it kills. It's deceptive, it's death dealing, desire overtakes the will, and, and it, you almost get this, this compulsive, drunken repetition, rule upon rule, law upon law. 
And this trinity of the law, you know, absence or loss, that's the, not just the Jewish problem in this instance, that's the human problem. The inability to access the word of God is like the inability to understand the law that reigns in place of Christ. And where is the lie? You know, as somebody put, the, well, the lie constitutes the person, the people. The law, the rule upon rule, do and do is, you know, Paul says the law of the mind. That's what, uh, through which they would establish themselves. They would make a covenant with death. They would be immortal. And what blocks their understanding is the thing that they are denying. Death gets a grip on them. Injured, snared, and captured, they're tumbling into death. The, the thing they're taking up, they're drunk on the law, and it's killing them. Death is as incoherent to them as the word of God. As Jesus says to the leading Jews, this is John 5, 37 to 38. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. They do not have access to the truth because they are constituted in a lie. That's what Jesus says to them. You're liars and you're the children of the father of lies. The presence of God has been traded for their own righteousness or an attempt to establish their own righteousness. And of course there's you know, the Son of God before them and they can't recognize it. This is the founding moment even in psychoanalysis is the recognition that we do not have access to the powers that control us because they're given control as part of a unconscious structure, a, a lie which we have entered into. Tongues are a sign of what is impenetrable to the outsider, the place to which he does not have access. Listen to Isaiah again. Therefore, and this is the messianic passage, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be put to shame, disturbed, undone. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. And then he depicts the grave being flooded. Then hell will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. The tombs have been made sacred. That's where they're worshiping the idols is in the graveyard. Your covenant with death will be canceled and your pact with Sheol, the place of the dead, will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. You're not protected at all. As often as it passes through, it will seize you. For morning after morning it will pass through any time during day or night. It will be sheer terror to understand what it means. Listen to this. The bed is too short on which to stretch out. And the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. You can't hide. You can't hide under the covers. The error they have made is to imagine truth originates in their own system. In the law. In their own you know, understanding. Another way to say this is to imagine that truth is within. 
Again, the mistake of the Pharisees. Jesus says, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. They would hide under the covers, the cover of the law, the cover of pride, the cover of their own fabrication and identity and culture, their own weapons if it's a matter of turning to the Egyptians. Truth comes to us in a person through the words of Christ, but the truth is not in the, the form, the letter, the propositions of the words. In fact, you know, if, if you think of the New Testament, did Jesus speak Greek? He may have spoken Greek, but was he speaking Greek to the people who spoke Aramaic? He is probably speaking mainly in Aramaic. And what we have in the Gospels is probably a translation of his original language. It is never the case that the words, even of Christ, the words per se are the origin of truth. They are true as they come from Christ and speak of him. So too the Spirit is the living presence of the truth of Christ. So inasmuch as we have the Spirit, we recognize the words of Christ. This is what Paul says. He says to the people in the church, you judge when someone prophesies. Is it from God or not? Each man judges. The mind can receive any word only in proportion as it is the word of Christ. And we know Christ. The words of the Lord are not the logic that deals with words as if they were things, as if they were an end in themselves. That is, for Paul, there is the spirit, the spiritual logic that reasons from divine thought to divine thought. He says, you've not seen God to the Pharisees, but you should have seen him because he's standing right before you. He has been revealed in his son whom you do not recognize. Let two or three, I'm back to Corinthians 14, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. How can you pass judgment? Because you know Christ. There is something self-evident about what is of Christ and what is not. And we are to pass judgment on which is which. How do we do that? We have deep communion with him. We know him. Just like we know somebody reports to me that my wife Faith said something and I said wait a minute that's not Faith she wouldn't say that because I know Faith you've never heard him he says to the Pharisees because you do not know him I remember in the, the resurrection scene they're, they're at the sea, on the Sea of Galilee and Peter you know, keeps talking to this stranger on the shore that he doesn't recognize and John has to see, say to Peter Peter don't you recognize him it's the Lord. If we know him, we can discern what comes from him and what does not. The truth in this sense is not simply factual information, simply propositions. The truth is a person and we know Christ like we know persons. The truth is Christ. It's personal. Articulate. It must be intelligible, but it doesn't just reside in language. So the conclusion we need words to know people, but we do not confuse the words with the people. Some days I may actually say some stupid stuff, and I don't want you associating me with the stupid things that I say. I hope you realize that most days I may be better than that. With some people we may fall into what, it sounds like babble. I, I get this all the time on Tuesday nights when the 
kids start talking to each other, they're talking a language I don't know. But Faith and I can do that too, you know, when she speaks to me in Japanese. Speaking of what we know and share with one will make no sense to another. I presume we meet God in the same deep, perhaps pre-linguistic sort of knowing. The Spirit, Paul says, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If anyone speaks in a tongue, he says it should be by two or at most three and each in turn. And you must interpret. I think he's saying to the one speaking in the tongue, don't speak in babbling, but give us a comprehensible word. There is no, if there's no interpretation, just stay silent. Just speak to yourself and God. Now, I'm not alone in this. this is, I, I'm going to appeal to an authority. Anthony Thistleton says that Paul is saying here, if you're able to translate your deep experience with God into something intelligible, well, that's good. Do that. But if not, if it's unintelligible, remain silent. That's what Paul is saying. And there's no third party involved at all. The child of God relates directly to God through the Spirit with the image of the Son before him. And this, as I've said, will refract differently with all of us but, and uniquely. And we need to hear each unique word. We all are prophesied in Paul's picture. Paul says, I do it more than anyone. I commune with the Spirit more than anyone. And I come then with things to say more than anyone. Be alone with God. Enter into that presence, but expect to emerge with something intelligible. Through the work of the Trinity, relation with the Father is no longer mediated through the law, but through the Son and the Spirit. That's the picture. We have direct access to God. Let me just close with Paul's words. You can all prophesy one by one. Come and prophesy so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.